Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I am honored to have Dr. Haliza Pressman on this show, who has a podcast that I listen to so often and admire her work, her her knowledge, her expertise. So I'm very humbled and nervous uh, to even share this episode, but super pumped. Dr. Lisa is a developmental psychologist with over 15 years of experience working with families. After co-founding Seedlings Group and the Mount Sinai Parenting Center, she began the Raising Good Humans podcast to bring the latest research on child development directly to parents. Without having to sift through journals or endless parenting books, Dr. Aliza is empowering parents with the knowledge they need to make choices for their families. She's bringing her expertise and background to listeners every week and starting a new community around evidence-based parenting practices. Dr. Aliza holds a BA from Dartmouth College, an MA in Risk, Resilience, and Prevention from the Department of Human Development at Teachers College, and her PhD in Developmental Psychology from Columbia University Graduate School of Arts and Science. She's an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Behavioral Health Department of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital, where she's co-founding director of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center, as well as the psychologist, the therapist for Drew Barrymore's show, Ask Dr. Aliza. Without further ado, it is my honor. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I'm so honored to have Dr. Aliza Pressman on, who has an amazing podcast of her own, um, really does amazing work developmentally when it comes to kids and adults and all these wonderful things that she does. Raising good humans um, is something that I think a lot of us have heard of um, and, and really connected to. And you're also connected to Drew Barrymore on her show, right? Your doctor, Ask Dr. Aliza. Oh. Right, which yes. is pretty cool. So uh, all these amazing things. So I'm super honored you even said yes. I didn't even expect you to just even read the email. But uh, that being said, can you introduce yourself <laughs> to the listeners who might not know who you are? And then we don't really like those people. So whatever. <laughs> um, thank you for having me and for your kind words. Um, okay, well, well, I'm Aliza Pressman. I'm a developmental psychologist and um, a mom. And I am a professor. I'm assistant clinical professor of pediatrics in the Department of Behavior and Development at Mount Sinai. Um, Mount Sinai School of Medicine is in New York City, and I'm the co-founding director of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center. And then I have a private practice and the podcast, as you know, Raising Good Humans. And I and I do love Drew Barrymore very much. <laughs> who doesn't? Even if I'm not on the show, I, who doesn't yeah. love her? I mean, that smile... <laughs> E.T. I mean, we're just sucked in from the beginning. It's yeah, over. Like, she's, you're, you're, she's good peeps. And she seems like a nice person. Um, we'll get to that later. But how how do you – what put you into the position and why did you go this direction with your career as developmental psychologist and as well as, you know, what came about to create Raising Good Humans and all the things that you're kind of getting involved in? Well, I ended up going into developmental psychology because – not a lot of people know this minutiae detail about the field of psychology, but there are so many different branches, as you know. But um, And so when I started taking this required core courses in psychology, because I was thinking I wanted to do drama therapy, believe it or not, um, I took, it was, you know, I, I took kind of 
developmental psychology, social psychology, clinical psychology, which was called abnormal psychology and counseling um, or organizational. I don't know. Anyway, I took four of these branches and it was like speed dating for me. And I just fell in love with the idea of understanding how we come to be who we are and looking at human development over time. And what's funny is that everybody thinks psychologist means clinical psychologist and being a clinical psychologist or a therapist is a totally different, it's a cousin. And so for me, what was interesting, and of course, it's not that I didn't have to do a lot of work in looking at clinical, and it's not that I'm not hugely collaborative with clinicians, but the lens of developmental psychology is a a strength-based lens. So there's no diagnosis. It's about understanding more than it is about um, an intervention. Both are hugely important. One is not more important than the other by any stretch of the imagination. But it, I think it gave me a different lens to end up going into working in a setting that was feeling quite clinical in that I interact with humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the context of parent support and education and resident and pedi- pediatricians, healthcare providers. Um, so that's why I have this different lens, I think, than what people typically perceive psychologist lenses might be. And I just find it fascinating in in the nerdiest way. I didn't even have kids when I went into this field. Now, of course, I have high school and uh, seventh grader, and I'm utterly fascinated because I, you know, when you are interested in something and then you get your own live lab, it's very cool. Um, I've never heard my of my kids are a live lab before, but I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. My poor kids. My kids. a C, right? Hey, you know, <laughs> totally. the joke like therapist kids end up going to therapy, right? Isn't that a the joke, but it I is. love that you made the distinction because I think people assume or don't know the vast breadth that is mental health. Oh Especially my God. Now with totally. all the letters like LMHC, LMFT, you know, LCS, I'm an LCSW, right? And even psychologists, you have sports psychologists, you have developmental psychologists, totally. psychologists, yeah, everything, right? And it, it's beautiful for me. Um, and I love that uh, the distinction of the name, the abnormal psychology class. But I think we all have had that professor or that class when we first started that kind yeah. of does to push us towards a direction. For me, it was my abnormal psych class with the professor itself. His name was Dr. Where Alan you were Perry. like, ooh, I like that. Yeah, it was Dr. <laughs> Alan Perry. His name was. And not related to Bruce Perry at all, but um, he was just the way he talked about a human as being a human in an abnormal class, abnormal psychology class, really focused on diagnostics and the way he took away the diagnostics and looked at it as a human that is suffering or struggling or in pain mm-hmm. versus the words that we kind of brand people and label people with. Mm-hmm. I-, I was like, I need to learn from you and I, ne- I need to do this for the rest of my life. And um, it's just so amazing. I have started to get really involved, whether it's social media, podcasting, you know, PR media on parenting as I would like to be a parenting focused specialist because I don't see a lot of men, right, in that yeah. world. And it only happened when I had my daughter and I went, it clicked. All the developmental stuff that I learned that I was like, oh my gosh, another class on this again, <laughs> I was so enamored with. And 
what, what for you, and, and one of the reasons I, I love your work is that you're so based in facts, science, and knowledge and make it so accessible for people. And what are some of the things that you feel in the, in the world of psychology and, and now the world of social media that is, you know, people are on, what are some of the misconceptions that you just talked about being a developmental psychologist about kids that is being maybe reverberated or repeated a little too often that people are believing to a point that could be unhealthy? Ooh, um, that's such a cool question. Sorry, um, I'm going to think... ask a lot of weird, a lot of hard questions. I, I, it is hard, but, um, but so fun. And I, I think, and with the understanding that I just referred to my children as a little lab and now I'm like, Ooh, it's fun to talk about all these <laughs> misunderstandings. Um, it's only because there's, I, I do like to have levity, even though it's obviously a very serious topic. And I would say the most difficult thing to watch, and it's complicated because it's, when you're in a field and also you're saying my there's, I run the risk of doing this too. So I completely understand the tension, but there is a, a fixation on micro moments being so potentially damaging that, um, that has created this culture of perfectionist parenting in the service of such like such beautiful stuff, just wanting to get it right. But it's turning this experience of raising kids into such a tense, painful experience when any small thing doesn't feel like it's like a beautiful dance. And so I think the most important message is that maybe not the most, but up there in the top three is that the construct of repair, which is a huge concept in developmental psychology and has been studied for decades. So it feels like, you know, when something's been studied for decades and we keep coming up with the same answer, including when they add neuroscience, that repair actually is a huge part of positive development, which means you need ruptures to get to pair and that strengthens relationships. And it can really remind all of us. It's not like this is me, this is the field, but it can remind all of us of the possibilities of getting another chance mm-hmm. and the, the possibility that you blew it today. That's yeah. fine. Um, so I, I think that. that that's one thing is just letting go of not only the idea that you could get it just so, as if we know, like as if there's an actual right way of doing this and we're completely certain. Um, But let's say there's, you know, you have some things, some North stars of your approach to parenting and you get it blow at that day or that minute. I think buying into the idea of this very heavy, meaty science of rupture and repair equals the strength of the relationship that to me is so heartening because then it means you're not only going to blow it, but it's good for you to blow it. Mm. Um, now I'm obviously that's, that's something that if you were in a clinical setting and somebody was really struggling and maybe doing things that were too much rupture, not enough repair, you might look at it, but from where I'm sitting in the bigger picture of the typical experience of a parent, 
that is so critical for us and we're so afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want people to remind themselves they're doing their kids and the, their family a service every time you fall on your face and you get back up. Yeah. And, and I love, I love that you say that. Cause I think what occurred, I've seen working with, with people on the daily is that during COVID because people were kind of trapped and looking and watching social media so much, there became such an aggressive trend of perfection mentality of parenting. Look at this amazing activity I did with my kids. Like I remember the first week someone did like a mission impossible thing in their house where they had, they took red yarn and made it like, where you had to like dive through and make sure if you wow. touched the yarn, you were out throughout like hallways in their house. And they're like, look, I'm an amazing parent. I came with this activity and I'm so proud of that parent to be able to do that. Yeah, go for it. And be creative and, and be awesome. And, and that's so fun. But because I'm not doing it does not make me a bad parent. Right. Right. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, there are a few days where myself as a parent, you know, I got a, I got a three and a half year old. Her name is Ricky. I call her the Rickster. She's my little lady, my cutie patootie. And I have an eight month old, my eight month old uh, little dude, Max. And this week she had a massive meltdown because I said she couldn't go outside because it was time to go to, you know, the dinner and bedtime and the whole routine, 25 minutes of screaming. And, and I, I remember saying to my wife, I've never felt so pressured as a parenting specialist to, to utilize every, everything I know to not react the way that I'm the net natural tendency is to your natural me. inclination. Right. And yeah. Even and I know all the stuff, and I don't know right. everything, but I know the stuff that works for me and my family. And it's so hard to sometimes be that way. And then when we mess up or we fall, we get so upset at ourselves. So, what are some things that are very you talk about rupture and rupture? We all know, and we can that's pretty easy like make a mistake, right? You maybe snap at your kid or yell at your kid or don't do the parenting style that you hope to stay true. Yeah, what does repair look like then? So repair also takes many forms. And I think what's so also interesting about developmental psychology is the study of temperament and how we all respond to our environment in a different way. That's how we come into the world. And so if your temperament responds to repair or disrepair in one way, the repair is going to look different. So a couple examples of repair might be for one relationship. It's simply pausing. Everybody's regulated now and taking a breath and saying, I, I don't like how I just spoke to you. Yeah. And I just wanted to apologize. That had to have been really scary Yeah. or that might've been fill in whatever blank. And I'm going to work on that. That has nothing to do with you. And I love you. Mm-hmm. And that is not to be caboosed with but I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't blank. So, so, but then other kinds of repair, because sometimes kids close their ears or they're just like, what? Or they're too young or they're too old. And they're like, please with your script. And, you know, I have a 15 year old. If I came in with a script, she would do what she does, which is thank you for your professional parenting. Now I'd like to have a real conversation. Um, But repair might look like coming into the room a little bit later after school and offering, you know, 
something with a, that involves touch and a laugh that just acknowledges we're okay. We had a crappy morning yeah. and we love each other and we're okay. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, a, you know, you hold hands cause you're with your partner and you both had a m- moment, but you kind of were like, we're good. Right. Like we could do this. And the, and the funny thing that you're hinting to is that uh, one, my, my daughter's thing is when you're ready, I'm here for a hug. And for some that. reason, that stops her from like when she's she really like stops and comes over and gives us a hug. So sweet. And that's and now she knows and like I feel it's better wired. because I get a I get love and affection for my child. She gets love <laughs> for me and it builds that connection. And then she, you know, we wipe the tears, whatever it is. Also, I, yeah. I started doing deep breathing with her when I was when she was a baby. I'm like, okay, which is great. We go, and we would all laugh and joke. And then now I go, like little lady, take a deep breath, and she goes, I don't want to take a deep breath. <laughs> it's just so funny how she's becoming a teenager. But <laughs> the stuff that you're talking about is so similar to our adult relationships too. Yes, yes. It shows if you look at Gottman or even Sue Johnson. Um, the idea of repair in a relationship could be a simple physical touch of holding hands or giving a, a, a kiss on the cheek or even humor and laughter of that. You just get into a fight and you make a joke that's appropriate and timely, not totally right. right? You're not going to be like making a joke while you're screaming and yelling. Right, It's mutual, <laughs> right? It has to be a mutual joke where things are calm. And all of a sudden we're back to where we were. It's a reset button. And I think that something that you talk about often is the idea of that comparison of like the relationships that we know as adults, they're right. pretty similar to kids. Just kids can't express themselves maybe. And some, yeah. some adults can't express themselves well. And some adults can't. Yeah. And what's so cool is if you're like in the example of your daughter, when you have this moment of repair and you say, I'm here whenever you're ready, I'm here for a hug or whatever. What was the phrase? I, I'm ready. Whenever you're ready, I'm here for a hug. Whenever you're ready, I'm here for a hug. And so it's in the balls in her court, but you're open and available and expressing love. And the, the thing is when kids are establishing what feels safe to them and what is rupture and repair and all of that stuff, they're doing it in their childhood. And so now cut to her adulthood, she has a moment of rupture with a personal relationship and she doesn't think, oh my God, the world is ending or we're never coming back from this. Yeah. She thinks, okay, we got, this. we got past it. Let's hug it out or whatever she's going to need because yeah. that's kind of where, what, what has served her nervous system. And I just, you know, sure. And I mean, it's a lot of st- pressure to think like you're the way your adult relationships feel most familiar is going to be so related to what your child's relationships are. Um, But I think of that as so heartening because we have that we can control ourselves, not all day, every day, but more often than not. And then we have that opportunity. And then because of repair, it's never over. So you're not like, Oh, I'm listening to this and I have a 17 year old. This is, there's nothing I can do anymore. There's always something. It's a very um, optimistic approach. This whole thing about being a person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny story. Anecdotally, uh, my mom told me when her, when my father and I, my father and her got into their first fight as a newly couple, newly married couple. My, my, my mom was like, oh my gosh, we're getting divorced. It's over. Cause she never experienced yeah. her parents fighting. They always fought in the bedroom or at nighttime when the kids were asleep. 
So my father's like, what are you talking about? We had an argument. We're okay. Right. Cause he grew up in a household right. where my, my grandmother and grandfather, there was a lot of, you know, expression, maybe yeah. big, big personality, my grandmother, but it, it's just so interesting. So you talk about the beginning of like the minutia of parenting being like a, a worry that we focus too much on. What are some of the things that you feel we really need to focus on more as, as parents, um, maybe aunts and uncles, grandparents, whoever is involved in the family, what are some of the things that are not minutia that we focus too much on versus the things that we really should be? Okay. Well, embedded in answering this may be values. So I would want to say as a starter point, maybe the the, the most important thing is to figure out what your values are uh, in your household, what really matters to you in your parenting and in your, you know, like if you're raising humans, what are your most, when, when they look back on their life, what will they say are the mo- three or four most important things to you and your co-parent or whomever your village is? And really understanding that helps you figure out something I could never say, which is, I don't know if your most important thing is education, uh, financial stability and humor. And mine is compassion, dancing and money. I don't know. I'm just making these up. Those are obviously not mine, or maybe you don't know this, but I'm not, those aren't mine. Um, I couldn't say what to focus on, but I could say, find out what those values are and the way to the, the path to do that is really to imagine your child as a grown up talking about you and like what really mattered to you. And then you can figure out what do I need to focus on instead of this minutia? Like, cause you can go to that as your kind of mission, family mission. And you can say, I'm struggling here. I'm carrying a little bit. I'm, I'm really freaking out about how you're doing on this it test or whether you got into the soccer league or whatever it is, is that aligning with the values that I want you to hold dear and that I hold dear? It may. So that's where I stop. Like, that's where I'm like, how do I know? That's Mm -hmm. so personal, but figuring out what that is. And then if it's not, and you notice you're getting caught in that minutia, just take a breath and name your family mission statement, whatever that is, so that you can kind of go, oh, I, I'm not going to fight about this. Yeah, This just doesn't, this isn't big enough. And the other thing is, or I'm not going to st- fight with myself about mm. this. Like whether you have homemade dinner, doesn't matter. I care that we have dinner together. Yeah. So I think that's more how I would spin the sort of not, not focusing on the micro moments or the micro whatever's. And then of course relationship, because we know connection is so protective in so many ways Um, and boundaries, like those three things to like aligning your values with how you're responding, building connections and having clear boundaries feels like, again, this is not me. This is this, this field. So I I wouldn't say like, Oh, I came up with those, but I think we know from the, the whole fields of attachment science and developmental science and, rupture and repair and temperament and all of those things like what matters are are it's not as it's so much less of an undertaking when you view it that way something that i try to to really reiterate a lot with my clients when i'm focusing on their parenting is the simplicity of parenting right it's it's difficult it's a challenge it, it you know yeah. it pushes your boundaries it tests you in ways that you would never 
imagine. But if we start simplifying parenting a little bit more about how do you build a healthy relationship with a person? Oh, here are the steps I take. Okay, try that with your kid. How do you listen and create boundaries? Oh, here's how I do it. Okay, right? How do you create a safe, secure environment for someone? Oh, okay. And then all of a sudden you sit there. I was focusing so hard on, on counting how many veggies they were eating. And I was getting so angry that they weren't eating all the veggies and only in half. And I forced them to eat and sit there until they finished it. But what matters? They ate and they're full. So yeah. my wife's a dietitian, and, and, and we talk a lot about the mental health of like food time and dinner time and cooking together and all that kind of stuff. And it was a readjustment for me, right? One of the biggest, I wouldn't say arguments, but controversies that we had was how to feed our kids. And she pushed an idea of baby-led weaning, which I never mm-hmm. heard of because I'm not a dietitian. And let's be honest, I'm a husband and a man, and I probably don't do as much research as my wife does on parenting and kids. <laughs> um, and I'm very proud to, to call her my wife and an unbelievable partner in life. And so I was so combative. I'm like, this is ridiculous. They're going to waste all the food. I, I was just thinking in a way, and all of a sudden I started learning and listening and understanding why my values were being threatened and why her values were being promoted through this baby-led weaning. And it's something that just big picture, my daughter eats Brussels sprouts. <laughs> my three and a half year old asks for veggies if she wants, but also she knows and has intuitive eating where she goes, Hey, my tummy is full. We just started something like three weeks ago. She did this all on her own and she, I, I love her to pieces. She's my, my little lady. I, I'm obsessed with her. And she said something like, my tummy is full. That's what she did. I said, what, what are you doing? She goes, it's my belly talking. She was like, oh, voicing, that's so cute. She was voicing what her belly says. So now yeah. when we go, what is your belly saying? She goes, I want chocolate milk. Right. And then <laughs> of course my voice is deep and somehow my wife's voice is British, even though my wife is from LA. Um, but we made voices for our tummies. Right. So my, my daughter gets involved and asks, and I think that we lose sight so often as parents on so many external pressures of society for our kids to be X, Y, and Z or do X, Y, and Z that we lose the connection. Like I I honestly care less how many extracurriculars my kids get involved in. Something that I was thinking about asking you is through this experience, what pushed you to create the podcast and and what has been some of the more, more interesting or exciting conversations or people that you've connected with um, through that experience? Um, I started the podcast. Well, now I, I think it's been, three years. And, um, right. Yes. Um, well, no, so no I started time. It, once COVID hit, we don't know. Time got lost. That's what I was going to say. I started like six months before COVID. So I can't remember. Um, but I started it because, um, I was approached. I really never thought about podcasts, but some, someone approached me, they, uh, from dear media, which is the, the, podcast company that produces my podcast and they were trying to do podcasts that centered women uh podcast hosts and topics that would be appealing to women and they didn't have a parenting one but they felt like that would be that would make sense for what they were doing and I thought about it and I was like I don't really listen to podcasts and I don't really know what I would say without talking to other parents. Like I, so originally it was supposed to be my, I do, I run parent groups and um, so it was going to be like 
parent groups, but on a podcast. And then it just didn't work uh, that way. And I, I started to have individual conversations with researchers that I love that are in this field, but don't usually get to be out there in the talking directly to parents and, um, and colleagues of mine that I just think are so wonderful to hear from. But again, that's just not the context. And then here and there, a friend of mine or a client of mine, who's comfortable enough to, to have sort of a live session um, in a parenting conversation, but not really nothing super um, private, but just the, the universal stuff that feels like we all kind of um, could use that. um, And it feels a little bit more supportive. And then, um, sometimes there's just a wonderful book that is, it's so nice to have the author come talk about the book. My, my favorite probably episode was with, um, a very, uh, incredible, I mean, he's like the father of the fields practically, that's certainly a living father of the fields, um, was Alan Sroof and he has done so he did the longest study on attachment um ever because it's still going on and um and that was really special because one of the most misunderstood concepts in this field and in the larger world that comes up on social media all the time is attachment theory and people get it so messed up and really i think it gets into the minds of parents and makes them feel so crappy and i want to be like that's not even attachment theory <laughs> like it doesn't even matter um it's just like a misunderstanding of it so to have him there uh to talk to me about it what it is and what it isn't mm-hmm. and really just and i'm actually having him back on um in a few in december because mm-hmm. i just wanted to check in with him again and so that was the most special for me and it, it's been i had ed tronic on who did the original still face paradigm mm. um studies that really taught us about rupture and repair with infants um and their parents and and then he went on to do decades of of research on it in a more expanded way. But these are, um, that those are just really exciting opportunities. And then friends of mine who um, I just like colleagues that I I'm just thrilled to share with people. Um, yeah, but those I, have been like special. Yeah, because I've seen you've had Michelle Borba on multiple times. You know. Uh-huh. Uh, Tina Bryson, Julia Lithgott Hames, Anna Louise Lockhart, like all these people. And yeah. one of the reasons that I got turned on to your stuff is Julia Lithgott Hames, because I had her in my Oh, because she's so wonderful. And it's just so interesting to see these people who are unbelievable in their field and what they do, getting the time of day that they deserve. Are you in that secret society of like... Uh, Writers. The writers? No, but I'm Tina is a very good friend of mine. Um, yeah. Tina Payne Bryson, for those yeah, of you same, who don't know same. her, she's um amazing. she's written amazing books with Dan Siegel, yeah. um, my favorite parenting books of all time. Um, I think they really did the paradigm shift that um that people now say is a paradigm shift, but they did like 12 years ago. Um, and they're so wonderful. Anyway, so t- Tina uh introduced me to Julie. So that, that is why yeah, it does I sound say, like you, I thought you were part of that secret society of authors that they, they talk about, you know, they have this little, no, I uh, have only just 
I'm writing a book now, but I had never written a book before. So I'm just writing it. Not that I think that there's any. That's super exciting. It's very exciting. And also part of the reason I did the podcast was because I thought that's probably a really nice way to not have to read, but get content. So I don't want anyone to feel pressured to read. Like I I was a little hesitant. I've always been hesitant about a book because I'm just like, I don't want to add to anybody's plate. So it's not a have to, which is terrible marketing. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to read it, but if you have to read it. Please. But the funny yeah. thing is, is that um, I feel. I mean, it's not out yet. No, no, it's not out yet. <laughs> no. um, it's just funny because I started the podcast because I also I I'm not a, as good of a writer as I am a speaker. So I was like, you know what? This is a great way for content. You know, and, and you know, in the beginning of the show, I talked about the idea of you being with Drew Barrymore. What was the story behind that? How was that connection made? And how has that experience been to have a, a different avenue of reaching different people than just you know, not just, but your private practice, Mount Sinai, and the, ama- the the practical clinical work that you're doing in such an amazing way. How is it reaching and going a different direction with that world? Um, well, so I worked with Drew a lot um, when she had her babies. And um, we just, because I'm not a therapist, I don't have the same um, relationship with people where if they want to there, there aren't, there isn't the boundary between me and somebody that's talking to me about their parenting stuff yeah. as there would be if you were in a, a setting where you were doing therapy. So anyway, she's also a very dear friend of mine whom I love. And so my first episode, and actually she told me to do a podcast before and I didn't Yeah, uh, many years ago, she was the first person to say it. And I was like, podcast, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But she said, it would just be so nice to, she, she said it, but I always made her feel like she understood a little bit more, but also felt a little bit more calm than when she hadn't talked to me. And, uh, so I had, I asked her to be the first episode and I asked Dan Siegel so I could have two episodes out the first day. Um, and then she comes back every once in a while because it's so fun for us to, to get to sit down together in front of people. And then because of our relationship, I think nobody's feeling self-conscious and we can really have a real conversation about the stuff that is on all of our minds, whether you're a famous movie star from, you know, and everybody's childhood, E.T. was everything in my childhood. (laughs) But to then hear, like, it doesn't matter if you're Drew Barrymore or anybody else, parenting is one of the great equalizers. And I, and I love that something, one of the reasons why I was so happy that you have that opportunity is that I think that that's a great connector and honesty that we forget about the celebrity world or that world that you were saying that Jessica Albon, I think, or, or Jennifer uh-huh. Gardner, right? You had all, and, you know, I did my research and, um, it just, it just shows that people are human and, and that's something that we forget when we criticize, when we analyze, when we critique from far away through through the world of social media or TV or any media outlet, that they're struggling just as much as we are. They might have a little more money, might have different, a different, maybe a different set of troubles or or skills or opportunities or downfalls. But parenting is parenting because kids are kids, and you're their parents. I know that was a very weird way of saying that, but 
No, it's but it's not, true. It's just so true. And it's true. I mean, certainly some people have right, and some people have more resources than others. And I For don't sure. deny that having resources and support outside of yourself is so enormous. And so I'm aware that, you know, somebody, somebody who has all of that support is going to have a different experience, but in terms of your interpersonal relationship with your child, yeah, just the connection with your child, having nothing to do with your support and with the understanding that you're going to be able to be more present, the more support you have. So yeah. all those things aside, we're still all like parents and that is that there's no one else that can do that work. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, something I was, um, you know, last couple of questions, something that I have found, I recently became a supervisor as a therapist and, um, I love the idea of educating and I have found, and maybe you see something different in your role and all those kind of things. I would love to hear your perspective that, there is a disservice that I think happens to uh, some younger clinicians when they start in school where they aren't really educated on what it means to really sit with a human and be with a human. And a lot of times, yes, they have that, you know, uh, class mentality where they have the role playing and all these things and the theories and the, the clinical classes. And I have found, especially with either social work programs or LMFT or LMHC programs, the people that I've supervised so far, um, is very so clinical that it's focused so much on diagnostics and treatment planning versus I don't even know you yet and I haven't even talked to you yet and I'm already making a plan for us. What are some of the things that you are trying to do in your setting and in the, your role in Mount Sinai um, and some of the things that you see positives and negatives of the system that is creating the, the mental health professionals we have today? So I would say the when I'm at when I'm doing my uh, medical school work, yeah, um, or I did Mount Sinai work. I what I learned early was that I was teaching residents about child development and parenting stuff for their everyday well child visits during their behavior and development rotation. Yeah, because they really only get some some a little bit of information on autism screening and ADHD mm. and stuff that's diagnostic in orientation, yeah. but they were getting much more uh, parenting questions from tantrums to whatever. And so I started to understand and, and become, I don't know what the word is, but Sorry, I think I have COVID brain because I had COVID a few weeks ago and I'm still having trouble retrieving words. But Great. whatever the word is, I was um, it, there's this interdisciplinary approach at the hospital um, where we really realized, wait a second, most people are only seeing their healthcare provider. They're not going to get like a special parenting person unless there's something going wrong. Yeah. And there's a lot that you can prevent by learning about this stuff and supporting parents early. There's some mm -hmm. stuff that you can't. Um, and so what we tried to do was figure out, well, what are the fundamental things that need to be part of resident education mm -hmm. as they're going out into the world? So they're not mental health 
providers, they're healthcare providers, but they are accessed more than anyone. And so we wanted to integrate the importance of the parent-child relationship in well-child visits. Mm. And so important. I mean, that's like the first, someone's going to probably see a primary care doctor or a pediatrician First. More more than a therapist. First off, when anything's yeah, because they go for their you know yearly visit, their whatever when the monthly visit, you know something I actually wanted to shout out when I when my daughter was first born, I had a panic attack about seven or eight weeks into her life. Um, her birth was stressful. We did IVF. There was a lot of pressure into that process, um, and my brain just didn't deal with it. Had a panic attack. I remember sitting with the pediatrician. And the pediatrician looked at me and said, are you okay? Right? Because there was an awareness of mental health that he had a perspective because he was looking at the entire family, not just my daughter. Yeah. And that made the biggest difference because I broke down and said, no, I'm not. Right? Because I'm the one who filled out the uh, PHQ-9 and I'm the one who filled out the GAD-7, right? The, The tests for depression and anxiety. And he looked at my wife and went, are you doing okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm great. And he looked like, oh, are you doing okay? And I went, no, I'm not. And I find it so beautiful and, and powerful that that, you, that, that is a, a mission of yours to help doctors have some semblance of understanding and perspective so that when they see another person and see a human struggling, they have some context to how to help them. I mean, how wonderful, I mean, I'm sorry you went through that, but also how wonderful that your primary, your pediatrician was like that. And yeah, that is our mission is to make sure that the importance of that, because pediatricians want children to thrive. They are so committed to the health of children. If you're looking at a father who's going to be caring for that child and that where that connection matters so much, and he's struggling, you can't treat that child without supporting that parent. It's just not, it's not a whole picture. And it's been so rewarding because I think the pediatricians and the residents are very, first of all, they're young and many of them don't have kids yet. So it's so wonderful for them to get this other part of their work going. That's much more relational because that might not be, you know, because of course they have to figure out first physical health, but they have so much, you know, you see parents, particularly in those first few years, 15 times for just well-child visits. That's a, even if, you know, that's 97% of kids. So it's kind of incredible. And then the other thing is just over time learning, like once I was giving a talk at the Aspen Institute, uh, they had like, uh, a focus on families mm-hmm. and I was on a panel and somebody, and I was representing Mount Sinai and somebody raised their hand to sort of call out that all these ideas were great, but they couldn't get an appointment. So how was that helpful? Mm. And he looked really um, distressed. So I said, I'm so sorry. And I took a little bit of time to have a moment of connection with him mm-hmm. And I knew I was going to get, like, I totally lost that time in the panel. And so when I had a conversation with people that I work with and, and that I am 
now I don't directly train. We create curriculum. It's online. So just to be clear, ever since COVID, I've never stepped foot back in the hospital. But I said, you know, there are times that 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 is part of my training. Someone taught me that long ago. I can't even remember the exact moment. I mean, I can remember the exact moment where I saw that happen, where you, it's not even just in a one-on-one clinical setting. It is in any setting. If a human being is reaching out to you and they have a, uh, they're not a robot. If you don't respect the experience that they're having, you can't go on with the conversation. And there's so much like talking at, like I'm doing to you right now. You're good. You should be doing. I I think it's worth taking the time, even though I just remember that so well, because I, I had, a, I like questioned myself and then I was mad at myself for questioning myself. Like, of course, this person deserved, a, you know, I, a conversation, but my initial reaction was like, should I respond to what this man says or should I figure out how to support him in this moment, or should I just like move on to the next thing? And I did not like myself in the version that considered not stopping and connecting. And as I get older and more comfortable, I realize that's, that's such a huge part of the training that we have to do in the healthcare setting is just hearing people and not being, not thinking about diagnosis and all of those things. That said, it's a tough system because Doctors have like five seconds per person. And that was, so that example doesn't really highlight anything. One of my favorite doctors that I've ever had was, I have Crohn's. So my GI doctor, he gave me time of day and didn't care about the next person, which is why his wait time was so long. Right. But he he listened to me and gave me time. And I think that in the world that we live in with insurance and, and, you know, it's a bigger issue of, you know, that idea of turnaround um, and billable hours is something that is losing human connection. You know, the last last question I have for you, because I know you have a, a lot of things to do and you're, you're a very uh, busy person, is um, we touched a lot of topics. If someone had to take away two things when it comes to their perspective on parenting, what would they be? I always say this, so it's super hokey sounding, but it would be all feelings are welcome. All behaviors are not. Hmm. And you can figure out the rest. I love that. Well, Dr. Aliza, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, doing the work that you do. Um, Thank you for saying yes. And thank you for uh, continuously creating content for all of us to learn from and to grow from. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for all the work you're doing and including raising a three and a half and eight month olds because you are in the intense part. All the bags, all the bags right there. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So 
thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. We've got more guests and more great content coming your way.